whether it's a wedding gift or the gift of celibacy, Pastor Xavier Reese says we're to celebrate in this simple truth. God made man and woman for marriage as the norm. With this caution, a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, they two should become one flesh. Genesis 2, 24. That is the norm for life. Single life is the exception to the gift of celibacy. Not one of them is superior to the other. You're to be responsible in the state that you're in, in the Lord. Very, very clear. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. We live in a day and age where standards and morals concerning sex and marriage are so lacking, they're practically non-existent. But should you turn to Scripture for the simple truth of God's divine plan for husband and wife, it couldn't be made clear. Let's rejoin Pastor Xavier finishing up a study in 1 Corinthians begun last time of the principles for married life. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9, and the message entitled Sex and Marriage. Paul gives three principles here regarding their sexual relationship in marriage. They are as follows. First, verse 1 and 2, marriage is God's provision to avoid fornication. Second, verse 3 through 6, marriage is God's provision to attain sexual fulfillment. Three, 7 through 9, Marriage is God's provision to avoid sexual lust. Now notice the Corinthians, in verse 1 here, asked Paul if it was good for a man to have sex with a woman. The apostle tells him that it was not good, notice, for a man to have sex with a woman who was not his wife. This is the context. The word man, anthropos, It's man in general instead of the specific word for husband at this point. The word for woman, indefinite noun, instead of the specific wife for now. But he's going to tie the specifics as he moves on what he's referring to. All right? Look at verse 2. The Corinthians were told by Paul that the solution to sexual immorality is marriage. Don't miss that. Let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. To have is another euphemism for sexual intercourse. Look at four. The wife is not to deny her husband's sex. He hits it to reinforce it. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. The word authority means to have or to say or to have full and entire authority over her body. In the negative means she does not. Now the world will tell you, ladies, it's your body. It is not your body if you're married. A wife has no right to deny her husband's sexual relationship due to her marriage. Listen, responsibility. This, of course, does not allow or command a husband to force his wife. If you love each other, you're sensitive. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So he hits everything he hits, he hits on both sides. The husband can only deny his wife's sexual relationships. Never. That's when. Never, but must submit to her as the head of the home. He alone is responsible for the sexual contentment of his wife. Look at 5 and 6. The apostle declared the problem regarding marriage at Corinth because you've got to put it in the context. He wrote it to people of that day. The Corinthians were attempting to vow a life of celibacy after marriage, it's believed. 
do not deprive one another. Their fault and failure was to deny one another of their sexual rights. The intent and purpose, I'm sure, was to think that they would become more spiritual. While we're married, but we really love the Lord, so we're going to show him how much we love him. We're going to live as single. What are you talking about? That's modern interpretation of what Paul is saying to them. You're out of your mind. They were sincere, but sincerely wrong. Kind of like uh, I'll share with the monastic faith. You go out to the cave, you go out to the monastery, you know, to think that it's going to make you more holy, and you go in the room and it's just you, and ah, there she is in your mind, in your heart. Because the problem is your heart. You can be out in the desert, you can be in the city. You just have greater access to fulfill in the city. But the problem's still in the desert because the problem's your heart. Our mind, we're fallen. Look at five and six still. The Corinthians were given a permissive prescription now for sexual abstinence in marriage. Except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer. Now, the proper way is by conduct of consent. Notice. The word consent there means harmonious agreement with the right attitude, or you shouldn't do it. In other words, you don't just say, all right, okay, I'll do it, but your heart's not. No, you're both agreement. And listen, if a husband and wife want to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting, it's only going to be better for your marriage. Who would, why would you deny each other? Now, we're going to talk about the time period. We've got to use some common sense, okay? But why would you deny it? Now, the proper duration... It's for a time. The word time is kairos, meaning a measure of time. It can be used for a small measure, large measure. It can be used for a season, a day, a week, a uh, summer. It's, it's a specific word like that. So the duration of the separation sexually is to be uh, one of practicality and common sense and not one of foolishness or presumptuousness. All right? The proper purpose is for spiritual reasons, fasting and prayer. The giving of yourself is to the Lord by denying oneself the most precious personal and prized privilege of being one sexually with one's mate. The seeking is the mind of God to receive direction, instructions, and wisdom. There is no implications that sex hinders hearing God's voice. You can continue in relationships and God hears you. So be careful what you take out of the scriptures that the scriptures don't say. Bad relationships hinder prayer. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, Dwell with your wives according to knowledge, lest your prayers be hindered. Now notice the Corinthians were given a good advice here about the duration, about their absence in marriage. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now, the proper wisdom is to come together again sexually. Notice that. In fulfillment of their consent of a reasonable time returning to a normal sexual life with each other. All right? The anticipation is inferred here again. Having denied yourself, you're longing to come back together in the context of marriage. Now, the proper understanding is to not go beyond the ability to abstain in an awareness that Satan can be there to tempt either one of you due to the lack of self-control. The lack of self-control could be the result of too long a time resulting in arguing, fighting, and then the opposite result has happened. Instead of denying yourself for a while to seek in prayer and to be close to the Lord, now you're upset, now you're in the flesh, now you've got sin between each other and God. You understand? 
So tell each other, agree with each other. Don't go undercover and, and do it on your own. And then when your husband or wife wants to have a relationship, you, you kind of just shine and they think something's wrong. Then you get in a big old fight. So there must be communication to shorten the time if need be to avoid difficulties and faithfulness. In the Corinthians case, lest the man be tempted to go to the temple of Aphrodite, right? He's writing to the Corinthians, right? And that's what he's talking about. The intent to use sex as a tool to injure or punish a maid is from the pit of hell. Do not allow Satan to enter the Holy of Holies, okay? The proper understanding of the sexual separation is emphasized now in verse 6. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. The time of abstaining from each other was by concession, by permission. The time of abstaining is not as a commandment imposed by one over the other, but mutual. The separation is in full agreement both in word and in attitude. This is the only appearance of this word here, concession. The marriage covenant is mutual and removes all restraints between a man and a woman. The woman is free to enjoy her husband in his physical appearance. The Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 10 through 16. This very descriptive describes his torso and his eight-pack his eight and everything else. And, you know, just, she's just enjoying it, okay? Nothing wrong with that. In her declaration to him of her delight in his lovemaking to her, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse uh, 2, chapter 4, verse 10, and other passages. Descriptive in a romantic way, not perversion as today. In her expressed need to re be renewed in her love by being alone with him. And sometimes getting away, enticing his curiosity. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, 9 through 13. Come away, my love will go out alone together. In her declaration that she is his forever Song of Solomon, 216, 637, 10. Forever. The basic things to walk with. Say, you know, honey, I really love you. I want to thank you for just your goodness to me and just through the years. You're always there. Give me a hug. Give me a kiss. All those little things. So important. Fanning the flame. The man is to express his love and delight for his wife. In the romancing of his wife, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 2. Very descriptive. The intimacy of sex and marriage is in total trust and assurance of privacy. Knowing that your mate is not going to make fun of you or make, or because he's honoring you as a, a wife and, and she, you as a husband. You're not degrading each other. Because you know that he's not just using your body or vice versa, but they're going to be there the next day, the next week, the next year, the next decade, until you die. The fact that what takes place is for no one else but each other. The fact that the relationship strengthens your marriage and commitment of love for each other throughout life. And what a, what a fertile ground for your children to grow up in. <laughs> what an awesome responsibility we have, ladies and gentlemen, as husbands and wife. Two are always better than one. Not two men. Not two women. One man. One woman. Marriage is God's provision to attain 
sexual fulfillment. Now third, seven through nine. Marriage is God's provision to avoid sexual lust. Now in verse seven, Paul declared, unless one has the gift of celibacy, lust can be a problem. For I wish that all men were even as I as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul expressed his own desire for all men to be single. Uh, the word desire, this is his own mind as preference, not God. Now, some men try to say, well, you mean then he's speaking not inspired, where he says, I, no, 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 it's all inspired. He's saying there's some things that are directly commanded by the Lord, and then he finishes the chapter saying, I even have the Spirit of God. All of it's inspired. Don't get into that kind of stuff. You get it weird, okay? It's all the Word of God. The word men, they're anthropos again, the general term for mankind, not male. Paul expressed that each person has his or her gift from God. The gift charisma is supernatural. One in that manner. A single having the need of desire sexually means they don't have the gift in the one that they'll be married. The other being that that doesn't have it, then they have the gift and they don't need to be married. You understand? But that's the exception. The rule is we're all sexual beings and we will be married. This is God's design. Paul is not teaching that a single life is better or honored more by God than a married life. It's simply a desire of his expression for being used by God without less restraints. That's all he's saying. He declared it in the context of the present distress, meaning suffering and persecution in verse 26 and 29. That's the context. It's a lot easier to suffer persecution alone than when you have a husband, a wife, and children, right? More difficult. That's what was coming. He declared it in view of being able to serve the Lord more completely, not having to care for the family, verse 32 to 34. He declared the difference so that each can serve with knowledge and efficiency in whatever state they may be in, be it single, divorced, or widowed. Verse 35, and he declared marriage to be the highest priority as God's norm and will for man and place it side by side to Christ in the church, a parallel relationship in Ephesians 5, 21 through 31. Marriage is the priority. He's not comparing one better than the other. He's not pitting them against each other. He's exalting marriage. Look at verse 8. Paul declared his advice to the unmarried and to widows to remain single. But I say to the unmarried and to the widow, it is good for them if they remain even as I myself. Now, Paul goes from the general advice of all to the specific, the class of unmarried and widows. The unmarried has the article, the single males, the single women, simple. The widows are, the, are a special class in the church, not just a person whose mate has died. There were widows under 60 years of age that were expected to marry, 1 Timothy 5 tells us. There were widows over 60 that would be cared for the church if they met certain conditions, 1 Timothy 5. God is not a respecter of person, but he gives us conditions. Now, notice Paul gave advice after his own example of life of being single. His single status is indicated by the phrase, even as I am. He said it would be good, kalos, which means excellent in nature and characteristic and therefore well adapted to its end. 
The same word is used to abstain from sexual immorality and is advised to virgins in verse 1 and in verse 26 due to the present distress, the coming persecution, and the moral uprightness of it. He is believed to have been married, as you know, for he belonged to the great Sanhedrin, which required marriage. So Paul was married at one time. Paul says nothing about his wife on how he became single, whether she left him because he became a Christian, we don't know. Whether he is widowed, we don't know. It's anybody's guess, but he was married. But Paul tells that Peter and the Lord's brothers traveled around with their wives to minister in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. So God never said that ministers can't marry, like the Catholic Church does, okay? Now, the advice of Paul would have been difficult to accept if he had never been married. You take advice from people who have proven themselves. You understand? But having been married, he spoke with personal authority. And having been enabled, now with the gift, he spoke with spiritual authority. Now, Paul did not prohibit singles or widows from marrying. That's important. The single person does not sin if they marry. Verse 36 says, The young widow was encouraged to remarry if they were under 60 years of age, as 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 15 says. And there in Timothy, they were to be denied support of the church if, because they would desire to marry and then promising to serve the Lord, they would cast the Lord off if they were under 60 years of age. So if you were 59, a widow in the New Testament, you were encouraged to marry. You wouldn't be held by the church. Okay? They would become busybodies, it says, running from house to house in verse 13 of Timothy. They were to marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully as some had already done in verse 14 and 15. So there's very, very specific conditions to be supported by the church. Now look at verse 9. Paul declared a caution to those who have not the gift of celibacy in view of lust. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The one who can exercise self-control is the one who has the gift. Simple. The sharp contrast between those who can be single and those who cannot exercise self-control. Now, the inability is by not having the gift. Now, the one who does not have the gift of celibacy is to marry, and they will marry. They're not inferior. They're not second-class citizens. They're, they, they know less love God than those who don't marry, and they have not sinned. Simple. The reason given for the advice is that it is better to marry than to burn with sexual lust. The inability to control one's sexual desires should not be the evident reason nor the primary reason for marriage, okay? If you get married because you're lusting, you're going to find out that once you get married, you'll keep on lusting. If you get married for love and God's direction, then marriage will be the solution for the normal passions. You understand? Simple. The word better means more useful and advantageous to marry than to literally burn with sexual lust. Now, living out one's life in accord with God's gift is important. Verse 32 to 36, whether you're single, divorced, or married. Now, the act of getting married is no guarantee that you will not lust ongoing. Paul is not saying that if you are lusting, that it is good reason to marry, for you will only continue lusting 
after being married, you marry for love, then that's the proper motivation. And as you're growing, God takes care of all those other things. To marry is in the heiress a single definite act, one man, one woman, while the burn or passions here is in the present, a reoccurring condition. So you have to bring thoughts of captivity, obedience to Christ, dying to self, right? Because we're fallen people. How many men have attempted to make themselves celibate by their own commitment and devotion only to fail miserably either by falling into sexual sin or burning in lust for the rest of their lives? The monastic order, I said earlier, the Catholic Church is that kind, attempting to retreat to some isolated cave or monastery and the problem is inside their heart. The advantages of being single or widowed are great in order to serve the Lord. The single person has a, is a great tool for God, for he or she has very little in need for life. You're single, just you. You're more flexible. You're encumbered with less responsibilities. You don't have marriage responsibilities. Verse 34 says that. You have the gift of celibacy, so you don't have the distractions of sexual attraction. But if you don't have the gift, you still can serve the Lord excellent. Walking in the spirit, denying your flesh, knowing that you'll be married one day, but you want to honor the Lord and your future mate, right? Because of the power of the resurrection. Not your power, his. The widow or widows also have a great opportunity for God to use them. They have been married and can make a choice, not feeling they've been cheated in life. They have advantage of marriage experience to advise others, proven. They're in a better financial state to be able to minister on the Lord's behalf without being a burden to the church. Now, God made man and woman for marriage as the norm, though the principle of marriage has its own distressful times due to our sinful nature. Can't, you can't deny that. For this caution, a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, they two should become one flesh, Genesis 2, 24. That is the norm for life. Single life is the exception to the gift of celibacy. If you marry, you do not sin, yet there will be difficulties and times, as Paul says. And in the context of 28, persecution was coming. If you don't need to marry, then you're freer for the things of the Lord, verse 32 says. If you are in a state of single divorce or married, not one of them is superior to the other. You're to be responsible in the state that you're in, verse 7 and 34, very, very clear. For the woman and the man are tied together. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 11. The woman was taken from the man, verse 8. The woman was created for the man, verse 9. The man or the woman are independent of each other in the Lord, verse 11. They're tied together. Two is always, always better than one in the Lord. Wow. Marriage is God's provision to avoid sexual lust. And so Paul has given to the Corinthians these three principles regarding the sexual relationship in marriage. Marriage is God's provision to avoid fornication. Marriage is God's provision to attain sexual fulfillment. And marriage is God's provision to avoid sexual lust. May God give us wisdom as Christians. Our children are looking and listening 
and so is the world. Pastor Xavier Reese, recapping all the provisions marriage provides for those abiding in the divine structure for husbands and wives that we find in Paul's first writing to the Corinthians, chapter 7. Now, if you've missed any part of this important study, or perhaps wish to pass it along to a friend, you can request a copy, and it's simply titled Sex and Marriage. It's available on CD for just $4. And by the way, this message will contain everything that Pastor Xavier shared the last time we were together as well. Now, the title to ask for once again is Sex and Marriage, or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for including the call letters of this station when you contact us. Next time, Pastor Xavier Reese takes an enlightening look into the misplaced faith of idol worship. That's next time on Simple Truths. Hope you'll be back for that. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 